Hey y'all, welcome back to Tina Smoot Radio. If you don't know who I am, I am Tina Smoot. I am a life coach, a mentor, and a motivational speaker. I am here to encourage y'all to um, learn about the act, the real kingdom of God, get away from religion, learn about the real kingdom of God, learn that the kingdom of God is the actual government and God cannot be voted out. He can't be voted out and he was never voted in. He's the kings of kings and the Lord's the Lord. Amen. Amen. So today is chapter three, chapter three of kingdom principles. Um, I'm about to just jump right into it. I love you guys. If you don't know, I have a YouTube channel called Tina Smoot. Like, comment, subscribe, hit that notice bell so you know when I go live. Um, I love you guys. I feel to get straight to the book. Chapter 3. The Original Kingdom Concept. Colonization of Earth. From our discussions thus far, two things at least should be perfectly clear at this point. First, every person on Earth, without exception, is seeking a kingdom. Consciously or unconsciously, every human activity and endeavor is directed in one way or another toward this pursuit. And second, as we have just seen, the kingdom concept of government, the original and first governmental concept, is far superior to any governmental system devised by man. The caveat, of course, is that such a kingdom be ruled by a righteous and benevolent king. Otherwise, a kingdom will prove to be no better than any other system. The inherent superiority of a kingdom over other systems of government is an especially difficult concept for many people in the West. As I stated earlier, few Westerners have ever lived under a kingdom and thus know little or nothing of how one operates. This difficulty is even more acute for citizens of the United States, whose nation, after all, was established in rebellion against a kingdom. Nevertheless, a kingdom ruled by a sovereign, righteous, and benevolent king remains the best system of government humanity could ever hope for. The reason is simple. The kingdom concept is of heavenly, not earthly origin. Its appearance on earth is due to another concept that originated in heaven, the concept of colonization. Simply stated, colonization is heaven's system for earthly influence. Seeing the big picture. In order to understand this, it is important to look at the big picture. We humans, divided as we are by religion, ethnicity, geography, national identity, and differing governmental systems and economies, have trouble grasping the overall picture that we are one global village. Religious and cultural differences and territorial loyalties often prevent us from seeing how much we truly have in common with one another. At heart, we all share the same fears, hopes, dreams, and longings. We all share a common desire to be able to control the circumstances of our lives. Consciously or not, we all are searching for a kingdom in which all are equal, enjoying the same rights, benefits, liberty, security, health, and abundance, lives with meaning and purpose and fulfilled potential. In the midst of our myopic pursuit of self-advancement, we fail to recognize that such a kingdom is available for the having, but we will never see it until we step back to take in the big picture. When I studied art in college, one of the fundamental concepts I learned is always to see the end first and then work my way back. 
In other words, a good artist sees the finished product in his or her mind before beginning to paint or sculpt or draw. That is what it means to get the big picture, to see the end from the beginning, and keep that end clearly in view throughout the creative process. Only then can the artist ensure that the finished product conforms to his or her original vision or design. A casual observer of any given phase of the process often cannot make any sense out of it because he or she lacks the big picture of the finished product that is in the mind of the artist. A few brush strokes on a canvas may mean nothing to someone watching the painter, but a good artist will know exactly what he is doing. He will know exactly where he is going and how to get there because he already sees the end result in his mind. He sees the big picture. That is why you should never judge an artist while he is working. It is only in the finished product where his full vision and intent can be seen. Whether you are painting a picture, carving a sculpture, or building a house, it is critical to keep the big picture, the finished product, clearly in view. Otherwise, your original dream or vision will never be realized, and you will end up with something quite different from what you intended. The biggest problem in our world today, including the religious world, is that we are so preoccupied with the phases that we cannot see the big picture. We are so caught up with our own little part and with fighting and arguing with everybody else over their little part that we have lost sight of our purpose. The most important thing in life is the big picture. But all we have are snapshots. Somewhere along the way, humanity lost the big picture of our purpose and all we were left with were tiny snapshots that provide only a narrow and very misleading impression of the whole. Long ago, we lost the end of our existence. Now all we have to work with are disconnected means, futile pursuits with no significance. Purpose defines the big picture. In other words, the big picture is the original purpose or intent of the artist or builder, the desired end result. What was God's purpose as the artist who created humanity? What was the end result he desired? As designer of the human race, what was God's original intent? This is a critical issue for us because without purpose, human life has no meaning or significance. And that is exactly what the philosophers of our day are saying. This is a critical issue for us because without purpose, human life has no meaning or significance. And that is exactly what the philosophers of our day are saying. Human life has no purpose or significance, so each of us must create or derive meaning for our lives wherever we can find it. We have lost the big picture, God's original intent for mankind, and without it our lives are nothing more than disjointed phases that make no sense. If our lives are to have meaning, we must recover the big picture of God's original intent for us, in the beginning, God undertook a wonderful building project called the human race. Why? God's original purpose in creating mankind, his big picture, was to extend his invisible rulership to the visible world. He wanted to extend his heavenly country to another territory. His desire then was to establish on earth a colony of heaven. God's big picture. Colonization as a concept was not invented by man. It is not the product of any human kingdom or culture. Colonization originated in the mind of God. It was His idea. God's original purpose was to establish a manifestation of His heavenly kingdom on earth without coming to earth Himself. 
A colonizing authority, such as a king, does not have to be present physically for colonization to occur. The mere presence of the influence of that authority is sufficient. As long as God could extend his kingly governing authority over the earth through delegated representatives, his influence would hold sway here without the necessity of his physical presence. God's original intent was to extend his heavenly government over the earth, and his plan for accomplishing this was to establish a colony of heaven on the earth. This was God's big picture. The king of heaven has a big agenda, bigger than national or international affairs. His is an inter-realm agenda. God deals with inter-realm affairs, the relationship between the invisible realm of heaven and the visible realm of earth. His plan was to connect these two through colonization. However, God was not content merely to establish his influence on the earth. He wanted to take some citizens out of heaven and put them on earth to establish the colony. How did he accomplish this? Let's examine some statements from the Bible, which is the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. Like any other constitution, the Bible lays out the laws, principles, and characteristics that define God's kingdom. Consider first the opening words of this constitution, its preamble. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 This opening statement establishes God's universal kingship by divine right of creation with absolute authority to do whatever he pleases. A little further down, we find earth's colonial charter. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. With these words, God, the King and Lord of Heaven, declared his colonial intent. This colonial charter delineated the purpose and defined the parameters of the colony. It also designated the persons who received responsibility for carrying out the king's desire. Notice that this statement says nothing about religion. This charter is not a religious declaration. It is a government document that defines governmental intent and establishes governmental authority. So the king, in this one statement, declares his big picture to create some beings just like himself, place them on the earth, and let them rule it for him as vice-regents of his heavenly government. This was his plan and his purpose for creating man. Because the purposes of God are unchanging, this is still his purpose and plan today. Heaven's Crown Land God created the earth as a place over which to extend his influence, but he intended to do it through mankind, not himself. He designed man to be a fit colonizer of the physical world he wanted to colonize. That is why we humans are so well suited physically for life in this world. The Bible says that God created man from the dust of the ground. See Genesis 2.7. Scientific evidence confirms this. Our bodies are made of the same stuff as the earth. Before God created us, he fashioned a physical world that would be a perfect environment for us to fulfill our purpose and destiny. Then he formed our physical bodies from the same material. Man is a triune being just like his creator. We reflect his image even in our composition. 
Man is a spirit being, after the nature and essence of his source, Father God. He lives in a body, which is his earth suit, that allows him to relate to the physical environment, and he possesses a soul, which is his intellect, will, and emotional faculties. We are suited for the earth as perfectly as God is suited for heaven. As we discussed earlier, the foundation and qualification for kingship is rightful ownership of land. In a kingdom, the land is the personal property of the king, and it is this ownership right that designates him as lord. In a kingdom, when referring to the physical land, the territory is called crown land. This implies the land is property of the crown, referring to the king himself. By creative right, the earth is heaven's crown land. In a kingdom, all the land within the kingdom belongs to the king. Every square foot of territory is his personal property, his king domain. In a true kingdom, therefore, there is no such thing as private property owned by the citizens. The king owns all. The Bahamas, where I live, was once part of the United Kingdom of the British Empire. When the British seized the Bahamas from the Spanish, all 700-plus islands immediately became the personal property of the King of England. They did not become the property of the British government. There's a difference. These islands became the personal property of the British sovereign. All of us who grew up under that arrangement understood that all the land was known as crown land, meaning it belonged to the one who wore the crown. As a matter of fact, during those years, it was not uncommon for the king or queen of England to give an island as a birthday present to a son or daughter, or niece or nephew. Since the islands were crown land, the monarchs, on their own prerogative, could give them away at any time to anyone they wished as personal gifts. As a matter of fact, this land could be given to any citizen as a personal gift of the government at the authority of the king and many people in our colony received large parcels of land for personal use. The same is true in God's kingdom. God owns the earth and everything on it. The earth is his crown land. As an ancient poet wrote, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Psalm 24, 1 and 2. Because God owns the earth, he can do with it however he pleases, and it pleased him to give it to man. Again, in the words of the ancient poet, The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. Psalm 115:16. Don't make the mistake of equating this with ownership. Crown land given to someone by the king remains crown land. At any time, the king can take it back and give it to someone else. That is the king's prerogative. So when God gave the earth to man, he did not relinquish ownership. We possess the earth as a trust, as stewards, as kings under the high king of heaven. The king gave us dominion over the earth, not as owners, but as vassal kings to extend his heavenly government to the earthly realm. He gave us rulership, not ownership. We have the privilege to rule the earth, and with that privilege also comes the responsibility of wise and righteous management and we are accountable to the king for how we manage our domain. It is also on this prerogative of kingship and lordship that God could, without the permission of its current inhabitants, promise Abraham the land of Canaan as a birthright. Today we see this understanding of crown land applied in the nation of Israel. The ancient Jewish law handed down through Moses stipulated that no property sales in Israel were permanent because the land belonged to God. 
The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, and you are but aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. Leviticus 25, 23, and 24. Israelites were free to occupy their own plot of land, develop it, cultivate it, live off it, and even pass it on to their heirs. They were not to sell it, however, especially to non-Israelites. If financial circumstances necessitated selling the property to a fellow Israelite, the law made provision for the land to be returned. Every 50 years, Israel celebrated a year of jubilee, during which time any land that had changed hands since the previous jubilee year automatically reverted to the original possessor. In Israel today, a similar principle is in effect. When young couples in Israel marry, the Israeli government provides or assists them with their first house. Why? Because there is no private ownership of property in Israel. Officially, the land belongs to God. The principle here is that in a kingdom, living on and using the land is a privilege, not a right. This practice reflects a kingdom consciousness that we all need to cultivate. It is critical for our understanding of the kingdom and how it works that we recognize that the whole earth is heaven's crown land and that we are merely aliens and stewards of God's property. God's Colonial Intent God never does anything to no purpose. From the very beginning, God's intent for the earth was that it be colonized. Isaiah, an ancient scribe and spokesman for the king, wrote, He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Isaiah 45.18 Our presence on earth was a colonial decision by our king. He created this planet as new territory, fashioned us out of the same material, planted us here, and issued the colonial charter giving us dominion. We own nothing but have access to everything, as long as we operate within the parameters of the governing principles the king has established for his kingdom. This is what it means to be a colony of heaven. The concept of colonization is the most important component of a kingdom that we must understand, or else it will be impossible to fully grasp the essence of the message of the Bible, the prophets, and the focus and priority of Jesus Christ. It is the misunderstanding or ignorance of this kingdom concept of colonization that has produced all human religions and sects. Christianity as a religion is itself a product of this misunderstanding. The primary purpose, motive, plan, and program of God the Creator was to colonize earth with heaven. Understanding the concept of colonization is key because once we understand what God intended, we will understand what God is doing. He put people on this planet for the purpose of expanding his influence and authority from the supernatural realm to the natural realm. A colony, by definition, is populated by people who originally came from another place. It is an outpost inhabited by citizens of a faraway country whose allegiance remains with their home government. Stated another way, a colony is a group of emigrants or their descendants who settle in a distant land but remain subject to the parent country. Colonization involves citizens of one country inhabiting foreign territory for the purpose of influencing that domain with the culture and values of their native country and governing it with the laws of their home government. For example, the message of Jesus as stated in his mission statement recorded in Matthew 4.17, the kingdom of heaven has arrived, 
author's paraphrase, would indicate that the first colony of heaven had returned to earth through him. As citizens of heaven, we inhabit the earth for the purpose of influencing it with the culture and values of heaven and bringing it under the government of the king of heaven. Paul of Tarsus, a first-century ambassador and colonizer for the king of heaven, described the king's colonial intent this way, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 3, 9-11 God's intent was to plant a colony of his citizens on the earth to make his manifold wisdom, his heart, mind, will, and desires known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, to the spirit world. His purpose in colonizing earth was to show the spiritual powers of darkness how beings created in his own image could be planted on the earth and bring in the government and culture of heaven so that in the end the earth would look just like heaven. In summary, 1. A colony is a group of citizens established in a foreign territory to influence that domain for their home government. 2. A colony is a foreign territory inhabited by citizens charged to influence that domain with the culture and values of their government. 3. A colony is the presence of a distinct cultural citizenry in a foreign territory governed by the laws and culture of their home government. Such is the concept of kingdom colonization. Understanding Kingdom Concepts Studying the concept of kingdoms is important for a couple of reasons. First, because most of us today, particularly in the West, have never lived in a kingdom, the concept is completely foreign to us. We simply do not know what it is like to live under a king. This might not be a problem were it not for the second reason for studying the kingdom. God's government, the government of heaven, is a kingdom, and God is the king. And because his kingdom extends through all creation, encompassing both the supernatural and the natural realms, it covers us also, which is why we need to understand it. A third and critical reason to study and restore this concept of kingdom is because the Bible is not about a religion or an organization, but a king and his kingdom. Therefore, in order to correctly understand, interpret, and apply the scriptures, knowledge of kingdoms is necessary. The kingdom is the oldest of all forms of government and the only one that is of divine origin. God invented the kingdom concept and established it first in heaven. Simply stated, a kingdom is simply a domain over which a king has rulership. Heaven was the first domain that God created. Although invisible, it is a very real place, even more real than what we call reality. The natural came from the supernatural. Therefore, the supernatural is always more real than the natural. Heaven is more real than earth even though we cannot see it with our physical eyes. In the beginning, God established a kingdom as the governmental system for ruling the supernatural realm of heaven. Once his kingdom was established in heaven, God desired to extend it to another realm. With this end in mind, the big picture, he created a visible, physical universe with billions of stars, including the one we call Sol, the sun around which revolves this planet we call Earth. The king chose this planet specifically as the location of his kingdom colony in the natural realm. 
He created it for that purpose. Then he placed on it human beings created in his image to run the colony for him. In this way, God also established the first earthly kingdom, which was merely an extension of his kingdom in heaven. Through rebellion against the king, however, man lost his rulership. We have been trying to get it back ever since. Even though we lost our earthly kingdom, we still retain the original kingdom idea that the king implanted in our spirit. We are searching for the kingdom all the time, but without God, we can never find it because it is from him. In our kingdom search through the ages, man has developed and experimented with many different systems of government, as we saw earlier in this chapter. Every one of them, including those we call kingdoms, are defective because mankind is defective. But they are all driven by our desire to regain and restore the original kingdom. This is not a utopian fantasy. In the beginning, God established utopia in heaven and then extended it to earth. Our utopian dreams are simply expressions of our yearning to regain the kingdom we once had but lost. According to the colonial charter stated in Genesis 1.26 that we looked at earlier, man originally was given an earthly kingdom to rule over, which was perfect. Adam and Eve were overlords of the physical domain, co-rulers who themselves were ruled only by God, their creator king. They were his people, and he was their God. There was no intermediary rulership. Human kingdoms, which at best were but dim and flawed reflections of God's kingdom, had citizens who were also subjects of the king, meaning that they were subject to the king's personal ambitions, goals, whims, and desires. God's kingdom is different. In the kingdom of God, there are no subjects, only citizens. But every citizen is a king or queen in his or her own right. This is why the Bible refers to God as the King of Kings. He is the High King of Heaven who rules over the human kings he created in turn to rule over the earthly domain. The kingdom is here. Adam and Eve's rebellion cost them their kingdom. Chapter 3 of Genesis relates the sad story of how the human pair fell victim to the lies and deceptions of the serpent, which embodied the Prince of Darkness, that fallen angel known as Satan or Lucifer. With Adam and Eve's abdication, Lucifer seized control of their earthly domain as a brazen, arrogant, and illegal pretender to the throne. Immediately, the kingdom of heaven put in motion his plan to restore what man had lost. And what did man lose? A kingdom. Adam and Eve did not lose a religion because they had never had a religion. They had a kingdom. So when God set out to restore what they had lost, he set out to restore a kingdom, not a religion. Religion is an invention of man, born of his efforts to find God and restore the kingdom on his own. But only God can restore the kingdom man lost. After the disaster in Eden, the king confronted his rebellious co-rulers and their deceiver and addressed each one in turn. Of greatest interest to us in this context is what the king said to the serpent, because it has kingdom implications. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3.15 Referring to the woman's offspring by the singular pronoun, he, indicates that the king was speaking of one specific offspring, one who would strike a fatal blow against Lucifer and his schemes by crushing his head. As the rest of scripture makes abundantly clear, 
This one specific offspring appeared thousands of years later as the man Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was the Son of God embodied in human flesh. When Jesus appeared on the scene in real space-time history, he brought a message not of a religion, new or old, but of the kingdom. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 4.17 These are the first recorded words of Jesus. The phrase, that time, refers to the arrest of John the Baptist, a prophet whose mission was to announce the arrival of the king. Now the king himself was on the scene, and he was announcing the arrival of the kingdom. This was the only message Jesus preached. Search all four of the New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you will find that Jesus always talked about the kingdom. Everything he said and did related to the kingdom and its arrival on earth. Jesus said, Repent, which means to change your mind or adopt a new way of thinking, for the kingdom of heaven is near, which means, in effect, that it has arrived. In other words, Jesus was saying, Change your way of thinking. The kingdom of heaven is here. I brought it with me. When Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to earth, he brought also the promise of restoring to mankind the dominion over the earth that Adam and Eve had lost in Eden. He brought back our rulership. Before we could be fully restored to our kingdom, however, the matter of our rebellion against God had to be dealt with. This rebellion is what the Bible calls sin, and it is universal in human nature, a legacy of Adam and Eve's treason in Eden so long ago. Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for our rebellion so that we could be restored to a right standing with God, our King, and be reinstalled in our original and rightful place as rulers of the earthly domain. The gospel message, the good news, is more than the cross. The cross is the doorway that gets us back into the kingdom. The cross of Christ, therefore, is all about kingdom restoration. It is about restoration of power and authority. It is about regaining rulership, not religion. Sons, not servants. Why did God wait thousands of years from the promise in Eden of kingdom restoration to its realization with the coming of Jesus? He had to allow the course of human history to flow until the timing was right. In order for us to understand what we lost when we lost the kingdom, much less understand kingdom principles, God needed the right prototype as an example. Across the millennia, many human civilizations and kingdoms rose and fell, until finally a kingdom appeared that had everything God needed to show how his kingdom was supposed to work. When the Roman Empire came to power, it had a concept of citizenship. It had a concept of lordship, ownership. It had a king and a domain. It practiced colonization. Rome had such an influence that wherever it advanced, that part of the world became like Rome. When God saw Rome, he said, that's exactly what I want. When the time was right, the king of heaven sent his son to restore his kingdom on earth. Paul of Tarsus stated it this way, but when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. The fullness of time has nothing to do with clocks, but everything to do with seasons. When the season of history was right, when the Roman Empire had risen to serve as a living example, when everything was in place according to divine purpose, God sent his Son into the physical world with the message that the kingdom of heaven had arrived. What was his purpose in restoring the kingdom? Not to give us a religion, 
but to restore to us our full rights as sons and daughters of the King. The King of Heaven wants sons and daughters, not servants. Religion produces servants. It revels in the spirit of servitude. Please don't misunderstand me. A servant heart is, as Jesus said, the key to greatness in the kingdom of God. See Matthew 20, 26 and 27. And he said that he himself came to serve rather than to be served. See Matthew 20, 28. But this kind of service should always proceed from the place of security in our knowledge that we are sons and daughters of the king and simply are following his example. Servanthood in the religious spirit, on the other hand, proceeds from a sense of false humility and self-deprecation, where one sees oneself not as a son or daughter, but as a slave. Sons and daughters of the king see service as a privilege. Religious people see it as an obligation. And therein lies the difference. Sons and daughters serve willingly because they are sons and daughters. Religious people serve grudgingly because they feel they have no choice if they hope to win the approval of the king. Never confuse serving with being a servant. Jesus came that we might receive the full rights of sons. This is legal language. There is not a bit of religion in these words. They refer to legal rights and entitlements based on relationship of birth. We are sons and daughters of God. Sonship is our right by creation. Christ did not die to improve us. He died to regain and confirm us. The price he paid in his own blood was not to make us worthy, but to prove our worth. He did not come to earth to enlist an army of servants. He came to restore the king's sons and daughters to their rightful position, rulership as heirs of his kingdom. If we are heirs and are destined to rule in our father's kingdom, then we had better learn to understand his kingdom and how it operates. We had better learn its principles and concepts. We must learn how to think talk and live like kingdom citizens. The kingdom is the most important message of our age and the answer to the dilemma of ancient and modern man. According to Jesus Christ, everyone is trying all they can to find it and forcing their way through life to lay hold on it. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Luke 16, 16b. Every one of the over six billion people on Earth are searching for this kingdom. This book is to help you and your fellow planet dwellers discover and understand it. With this end in mind, the remaining chapters of this book will examine in detail key concepts of the kingdom of heaven. End note. Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, Nashville, Thomas Nelson Publishers, 1986. Principles. 1. Colonization is heaven's system for earthly influence. 2. God's original intent was to extend his heavenly government over the earth, and his plan for accomplishing this was to establish a colony of heaven on the earth. 3. By creative right, the earth is heaven's crown land. 4. The king gave man rulership of the earth, not ownership. 5. A colony is a group of emigrants or their descendants who settle in a distant land but remain subject to the parent country. 6. As citizens of heaven, we inhabit the earth for the purpose of influencing it with the culture and values of heaven and bringing it under the government of the king of heaven. 7. God's government, the government of heaven, is a kingdom, and God is the king. 8. A kingdom is simply a domain over which a king has rulership. 9. In the kingdom of God, there are no subjects, only citizens. 
but every citizen is a king or queen in his or her own right. 10. When Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to earth, he brought also the promise of restoring to mankind the dominion over the earth that Adam and Eve had lost in Eden. 11. The king of heaven wants sons and daughters, not servants. 12. Jesus came that we might receive the full rights of sons. All righty, y'all. That was awesome. I don't know about y'all, but even though I have read the book, I still get messages that I may have missed. Nobody gets nothing the first time they read it or listen to it. You have to, it's repetition is key. You have to do it over and over. So I still got some gems out of there, especially about us being immigrants and God gave us rulership, not ownership. Us being immigrants, we become immigrants when we enter the kingdom of God because we no longer belong to the USA. We belong to the kingdom of God. In the spirit, we belong to the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Once we die to self, the Holy Spirit takes over. We belong to God. We belong to a different kingdom. So, therefore, we are immigrants down here on this earth. All right, I love you guys. If you don't know how to enter the kingdom of God, if you don't know the first step, the first step is believing that Jesus is the Son of God. No man comes to the Father except through the Son. The second step is believing that he died on the cross for your sins, which he did. He died for you. He died for me. He died for the world. And the third step is asking him to forgive you of your sins and to come into your life and to save you. And I want to point out, when you uh, ask for forgiveness of your sins, when you ask for forgiveness and you turn away from your sin, it means you just turn away. You do something different. You don't keep doing it. You do something different. But that takes time. So that's why you have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So God can show you how to get there. I love you guys. You guys have a great Monday. Don't forget to tune into my YouTube channel, Tina Smoot. Tina Smoot. Like, comment, subscribe. Hit that notification bell so you know when I go live. Love you guys.